Thank you for, thank you for that uh, music, for those songs. Uh, thank you that Joel is able to fill in for Pastor Mike. A couple of reasons. One is Pastor Mike's down doing penance, um, not penance, uh, <laughs> he's down in the children's wing doing children's church this morning. It was his turn, and we lead by example here, so all the leaders get a chance in children's church, and this is his Sunday. And also, Joel filling in because his wife Katie is going to have a baby soon, and I'm glad it wasn't today. So, that's another reason why we're so grateful. So, with that, take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges. Judges chapter 2. I'll move this down. Judges chapter 2. And I just, before we read here, we're going to, we're going to move around in Judges chapter 2, so uh, keep your, well, you don't have to keep your finger there, but uh, just be ready to move a little bit, because I'm going to share with you some thoughts and uh, some things here this morning that at least sometimes I've wondered about, and I wonder if you've wondered about. Have you ever, ever thought about this or wondered why you, you don't always have complete victory in your Christian life? We have victories here and there, and, and uh, little victories, uh, different places, different areas of our life, but uh, sometimes we're still bothered with the same old things. Uh, we still struggle with the same old sins, or we still struggle with the same old, uh, maybe they're not sins, but the same old weights that wear us down in our Christian walk. Uh, we keep having those same old struggles over and over and over again. And you have to, you have to keep having the, uh, the thought that someday this will pass, and, and why does it happen to me, and why am I doing this? And is every Christian that way? And uh, it's just something that m maybe we think about once in a while, having the same old troubles in your Christian life. Nations have the same problem. Have you ever thought, uh, what, what, what about nations? How come the nations struggle with the same things over and over and over again as countries mature? And we're a relatively young country in, in our nation. And are we going through the same cycles that nations have gone through before us? Uh, sometimes if you know world history, you'll, you may be able to put that together. You may be able to see that, that we are going through some of the same areas, some of the same cycles that uh, previous nations have. Well, sometimes there's a very, I should say very simple, not always, but sometimes there's a very simple reason that this happens. And we can find one of them simple reasons right here in Judges chapter 2. And if you look with me, we're going to read the first eight verses and then I'll give you a little background on this here. So in Judges chapter 2, this talks about Israel's disobedience. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Verse 6 says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to each of his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, 
who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. We're, we're just going to stop there. Let me give you a little background. Here, God's people, Israel, they are they're in the process of overtaking the land that God had, had promised Abraham way back in Genesis. Uh, we often refer to it as the promised land. And, and they're having a real problem, you see, because... You see, because Moses had died, or has been dead, I should say, for some time, and now Joshua has died. And they, they, they have found no one to take his place. They're like without a leader. They're without someone to, to follow. So as a nation, during this time, they just kept spiraling downward, it seems, spiritually speaking, further and further and further away from God after Joshua died. And it's incredible that, that when there's a great spiritual leader in a place and the people are following them and the people, they do well when they follow them, but then suddenly when, when God takes these leaders out of the way, those very same people, the people who should have learned the truth, should have understood what God wants, should have been, should have been in the know of what God wanted for them and how they should live and how they should act and how they should do things, those same people so quickly drift back to where they were before that spiritual leader was with them. This is what the story is about. This is what, this is what we're going to look at this morning. In fact, it can be summed up if you go over to chapter 2, or stay in chapter 2, look at verse 19. It says, but whenever the judge died, and we'll talk about who that is, whenever the judge died, they turned back, this is the people of Israel, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And then look what it says. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Think about that. This is, these, these are God's people. These are the same people who saw God work miraculous ways and inhabiting the promised land, getting into the promised land, conquering nations. And the minute Joshua dies, the time Joshua dies, and the elders after Joshua, when they are all dead, all of a sudden the people are like, well, let me just say it, spiritually brain dead. They don't know what to do, and they spiral downward. You see, the, this book was, was before the time of the kings, and th this book covers a, a very uh, uh, turbulent period in Israel's history. And the, the, the promised land had been mostly conquered by this time, by Joshua, but there were some strongholds here and there. We'll just use this, Andrew, okay? I won't move. Anyways, there were some, some strongholds held by the Canaanites, and, uh, and they needed to be overtaken still. They needed to, to clean it up, finish taking the rest of the promised land. And the book of Judges describes this, uh, this time period to us. This is where we're at in the book of Judges. Did everybody get that? They're in the promised land. There's a little bit left. They have to clean up some nations that they have to take care of, and, uh, and, then, and then it will be theirs. The entire thing will be theirs. And that's where the book of Judges is. Joshua is passed on, and so have the elders past Joshua. So this is where, this is where 
this time of judges is where military leaders and, and civil leaders would rule over them, and they exactly did that. They acted like judges, and they led the people, and they ruled the land. This book covers a 300, 350-year period of upheaval and, and heartache and defeat after defeat after defeat. Hence, that's why we have verse 19. And whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them, and they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. That's just what they kept doing. Now think about this. This book is a, it, it, it is a picture of, a, of the cycle of constant disobedience. And, and what happens is, is, is they, they, they follow a leader, a judge. God will raise up a judge for them. They follow him. He's a good spiritual leader. And they do what, he's, what the Lord says, and they follow them, and then this judge dies, and it's all of a sudden again, they like, I'll say it again, they go like spiritually brain dead. They don't know what to do. I shouldn't say that. They do know what to do. They just don't do it. And then they spiral downward until God, until they repent, and God raises up another judge. And the cycle goes over and over and over and over again. Disobedience, judgment, Repentance. Disobedience, judgment, repentance. Let me say it again. Disobedience, judgment, repentance. It seems that all the things God warned them not to do, they would do. In fact, the best way to describe this whole book of Judges is to look at the very last chapter and at the very last book, a very familiar passage of Scripture. That's Judges 21-25. You want to turn there? It sums up the, the entire book. Judges 21, 25. <clears throat> Last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And what happened? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we're at. That is what is happening. That is what's taking place. Now, with all this in mind, there's a principle that I want us to, to see here in this second chapter. And the principle is important because what happens to them, the people of Israel, this cycle of disobedience is exactly, is often exactly what happens to us. This principle begins, first of all, with a command. And I want you to look at it in verse 1. God gave them a command. In verse 1, and back in Judges chapter 2, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Think about that. That's, that's what he says. So I swore to give to your fathers. I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. He reminds them uh, of what he will do, and he does what he has promised he will do. He's a covenant-keeping God. And the covenant-keeping God says this, I brought you up out of Egypt. I, I brought you into the promised land. And, and he says, that just, like I, just like I swore to your fathers, I will never break my covenant with you. That's good to know, isn't it? We're going to take this in a minute. I want you to think about that and try to bring it up to date for our lives. Then verse 2, he says this. He says, but as for you, look what he says, but and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this 
you have done. He's saying, as for you, I gave you a very simple command. And that command was this. Do not, do not have anything to do with the inhabitants of this land. You're to drive them out. You're to destroy them. You're to get rid of them. You're not to have anything to do with them. Do they do it? I like this because no, they don't. They don't. In fact, they even intermarry with them. They hang out with them. They, 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 they say, well, you know, these people maybe aren't as bad as God said they were. I want you to just real quickly go back to chapter 1. I judge this chapter 1. Look with me. I'm going to do my best not to chop this up, but just look with me here. Just to, just to prove the point that God is saying here. In, in, verse, in chapter 1, look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages. And remember, they were to drive them out. Isn't that what he said in verse 2? Drive them out, get rid of them, destroy them. He doesn't do that. Or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of uh, Eblam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Manasseh didn't do what God told him. He didn't do what a covenant-keeping God told him, told him to do. Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Go on down to verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naholo. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of, of Achor or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or of the Aksib or of Helba or of Afik or Rehob. I don't know if you say them correctly, but he didn't drive them out. You get the point? So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33 says, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, God said we're not to, in verse 2, he, he says you should make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. So what they're talking about here is, well, it's okay. We didn't make a covenant with them. We, we, didn't, we didn't do that with them. What we did was we just kind of mingled with them and now there are slaves, and, you know, and some of them aren't so bad. You know, once you get to know them, those Canaanites aren't so bad. Some of them are bad, but we got rid of the bad ones. And besides that, they're not, they're, they're our slaves. They'll do our work for us. God gave them a very specific command. When you go into the land, you're to have nothing to do with them. You're to drive them out. There's another thing he said. You're to break down their altars here in verse 2. You're to break down their altars. Everything they serve, everything they, that, that looks pagan, everything that they idolize, Israel was to destroy it all. He wants them to get rid of anything that would tempt them to fall away from God or would hinder their life in him. That's what he says. Verse 2. He says, and you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land and shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? 
Listen, it's kind of the same today, is it not? Isn't it the same today? Sometimes we, uh, we, we, we may be not fully compliant with God's commands. We're really close, but maybe not fully compliant with what God wants us to do. So what do they do? They do exactly what God tells them not to do. They get into the land, and they change their minds, and they're disobedient. In fact, they're so disobedient. Look over in verse 12 of chapter 2. In verse 12, chapter 2, the Bible says this, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. You know what? Most of us are sitting here this morning saying, those people are so stupid. Because that would never happen to me. That wouldn't happen to me. I don't understand how they, how they could just do that. Before we're too critical, we need to examine ourselves. How does this principle affect us? And that's exactly what God has said to you and me today. Hasn't he? This is what I mean. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at a passage of Scripture. And there are many others we could look at. But let's look at a passage of Scripture that helps describe this for us. In Ephesians chapter 4. When you and I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior... Understand this, a whole new life began. Amen? Okay, we're new creatures in Christ. We've talked about that before. Christ is our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our life. We become children of God. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives within us, and we are to rely upon Him moment by moment, day by day, second by second. That's what we're to do. We are, we are to live a godly, holy, obedient life to Him. That's what it says when we read here, look with me in verse 25 in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Here Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let, us, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Is this God telling us something? Is this God telling us maybe what to do? Right? I know you don't want to say yes to that, but that is exactly what's happening. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt communication or let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Go on down to chapter, or chapter 5, look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must never, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know what Paul's saying here? Paul gives us a long list of things that does not belong in the life of the believer. Do you see that? It doesn't belong in the life of the believer. There are some things we don't allow in our life anymore because God says, get rid of them. You need to get rid of them. And the reason we don't allow them is because they become, that they give Satan a, a, an opportunity to, to get a foothold in our life, which turns into a, a stronghold. And before long, we will be in the same condition that the people of Israel were in. And that vicious cycle of disobedience, judgment, repentance, disobedience, judgment, and repentance. That's one reason why we struggle so often, is we get into that cycle. And it's hard to get out, because we can justify it in our minds. If we tolerate anything on an ongoing basis, not according to God's word, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. Look what he says here, still in Ephesians. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in verse uh, 30. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then he tells us what we should do. Be kind uh, to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, it's going to, when, when, we, when we fall into that cycle of disobedience, judgment and repentance. It's, it's, it's going to get in the way of our devotion to him. It just is inevitable. It's going to happen. So before we're too hard on those uh, Israelites, we need to think about our lives today. Go back to Judges. Go back to Judges chapter 2. He says, first of all, here's my command. I told you to drive out I told you to tear down their altars. I told you to not have anything to do with the, with the inhabitants of the land. But they compromise. Here's, here's what they do. And, and we never do this. They said, just, just no, wait a minute. We have fought long and hard for this land. It's been a hard go. It's really been rough. I mean, it took us a long time to even go into the land. And we've fought long and hard for it. There's been a lot of bloodshed. There's been a lot of death. There's been a lot of suffering. When's it going to end? When's it going to stop? When's the war going to end? It seems like it goes on and on and on. And after all, at the end, where they're at now in their life, they've conquered these people. They, 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 they've conquered them, so why go on fighting with them? Why go on destroying what they have? What kind of person would do that? Besides that, we're in control. We basically won. There's just a, just a few thousand of them left. We basically won. We shouldn't have to worry about them anymore. They're pretty humble. We pretty much taught them a lesson. 
And here's a great idea. Besides that, I got a great idea. We're going to force them to serve us. Huh? Sounds like a good idea. If you were back there and going through all this time, you might be thinking that yourself. I mean, it's, it's hard living. I could use a slave or two. We'll get them to serve us. And that should be, that should be just as good as driving them out, wouldn't it be? Huh? No? Listen, what they did, they were disobedient to the command of God, no matter how they tried to justify it in their minds. And where the reason I say it this way is because, because I myself and maybe some of you here would maybe fall into that category to where that doesn't sound so bad. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You've fought long and hard. You've seen, you've seen friends die. You've, you probably had to, had to maybe kill some people yourself in this war. You've had to struggle to find things to eat, possibly. It's just you've been away from home for a long time. And it's just time to stop it. And I, I you know, the longer I'm in their country, they're, they're not maybe as bad as, as some people think they are. And we've kind of whipped them anyways. We should turn this around. That's, maybe we can use this for our good. We'll, we'll, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll drive some of them out. We'll get rid of some of them. But the rest, we're going to dominate them and we're going to enslave them. And then they will serve us and, and we'll, be able, we'll, we'll be better able to serve God because we'll have more time because they'll be doing our stuff for us. Well, that really makes sense, right? That sounds, sounds pretty good. Makes sense. You know what we're doing? We're being good stewards of what God has given us. Correct? Don't, don't say yes to that. But it's easy to convince ourselves of that sometimes. There's only one thing wrong with that. Disobedience is rebellion against God. It's sin. When God says, if I want, when God says, I want you to walk one mile and you only walk two-thirds of a mile, folks, that's not obeying God. It may sound good, but it's not obeying God. They disobeyed the command of God. Now, let me ask you, has God put, put his finger on, on something in your life and he says, you know what? I want you to get that out of your life. We went through a list back in Ephesians, and there's other things we could look at. And he's telling you, I want, to get, I, want, I want you to get that out of your life that doesn't belong in your life anymore as a Christian. You're a new creature that shouldn't be there. You know, you know what it is. Maybe it's immorality. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's wicked thoughts. Who knows? You know. The list could go on and on and on. And God's saying, I want that out of your life that no longer belongs in your life as a child of God. It must go. The Lord says, get rid of it. We say, Lord, I got rid of most of it. I got rid of most of it. God says, I want it all out. Getting rid of most of it is not enough. And we respond, well, you know what? I understand that, and I am so sorry, Lord. 
but nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Everybody has their area of weaknesses. And besides, because I've gotten rid of most of it, I'm reading the Bible more than I ever did. And, I, and I, I'm praying more than I ever did. And I'm, I'm serving you more than I ever did. You know what we're doing? We're only trying to convince ourselves that what we're doing is right. But we're never going to convince God. If he says we're to get rid of it, we're to get rid of all of it. If it has no place in our life, then we need to get it all gone. If he tells us to do something and we do part of it, folks, the bottom line is it's still disobedience. It's not obedience. It's disobedience. It may be some awful sin. It may not be some awful wrong sin type thing. It may be a relationship for example, that you're in, or whatever, something like that. And there's nothing wrong with it, except God knows that it is not best for you. And you know he's telling you to get out of it, completely. Is there something in your life like that? You may be trying to persuade him about, trying to, trying to weigh the pros and cons, and, and like he's not sure what that is, so you're going to explain it to him? Is there something in your life that needs to go? You know what? And God's just not falling for it. He's not, he's not buying your excuses. But you're hanging in there anyways. Figure in time you can convince him like you did your parents. Doesn't work that way. What are the consequences of that kind of disobedience? What were the consequences for the nation of Israel for their disobedience? Let's look at what happened to them because the principle is the same. Go back or in Judges chapter 2, look with me in verse 3. It says, when he asked them, but you have not obeyed my voice, in verse 2, what is this you have done? Verse 3 says, now, or so now I say, I will not drive, out, drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. They shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall become a snare to you. In other words, you're going to lose my power to drive them out. You're going to lose my power to drive them out. And, and, and you know what? You know what they said? That's okay, because we didn't want to drive them out anyways. But then look what, go with me to, to verse 10. Verse 10, it picks up here. After all, and, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. This is after Joshua died. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. And what's it say? Who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And he says in verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they, and, and, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. That's what happened. That's what happened to them. 
They became slaves to those they spared. They, today, today, that's what happens to many of us. When we, when we have those things in our lives, we're just not getting totally rid of. Today, there are many people in bondage to some sort of sin, and they don't have to be. They can be set free from that. But like the nation of Israel, what happens to them? They turn right around and they do it again. They're disobedient, they repent, or the judgment comes, and then they repent. And all the way through the book, it's the same story. Look at verse 16 in, in chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. That's what we just talked about. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. That's what happens, like many of us today. Same thing, over and over and over again. We read the word of God, we know what God is telling us, we don't do it. We read the word of God, we know what God is telling us, we compromise. We read the word of God, we know what God is telling us, and we do some of it. We read the word of God, we know what God is telling us, and we do a little more of it. But we don't do it completely. Listen, God says, first of all, because you left them there, I'm not going to drive them out for you. Second of all, they will be a trap to you. They're going to be like a thorn stuck in your side. You think you have them under control? Then bam, just like that, they're controlling you. That's the way sin is. You think you have it under control? And bam, it's controlling you. Here's what we often forget. We are, what we allow to, to remain in our life that God says must go eventually conquers us. And sometimes we don't even see it. Sometimes it has to be brought to our attention. It enslaves us and eventually becomes that snare to what God wants us to do with our life. It's a simple principle. When God gives us a command and we don't obey that command, there are consequences for our disobedience. And we have to ask, God, am I willing Am I willing to suffer the consequences of disobedience? Am I willing to do that? If the answer is yes, then it's no wonder why I struggle with the same old things over and over and over again. Stop wondering. Stop asking. Because that's the reason why. Disobedience, judgment, repentance. You see, they thought, like many today, back in Israel, or back in this day of Judges, what's wrong with having a What's wrong with having a few Canaanites over here and a few Hittites over there and a few Jebusites over there? What's the problem with having a few of them serve us? Why is that so wrong? Because it's just like sin. When you think you have it, bang. The next thing you know, it has you. That's exactly what happened to them. They became in, in, ensnared with those that they were to destroy. Listen, you can't be disobedient to, to the word of God and expect and anticipate the blessings of God. It just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. So how about you in your life? Are you going through that same cycle? Disobedience, judgment, repentance, justifying maybe something you know God has, has placed on your heart that you need to get rid of in your life, and you're saying, well, I got rid of most of it. I got rid of most of it, Lord. 
but not all of it. Because if I, if I do this, then I can do this, this, and this, and this, and this, which will benefit you, I think. Let me ask you again, is there anything God has pointed out in your life where you know he said get rid of it, but you've sort of hidden it away, maybe you've camouflaged it up, maybe you've colored it up, maybe you've spiced it up, maybe you've covered it up, you've rationalized it somehow in your mind that it's okay. Do you, do, you, do you have a long list of reasons why it's not the worst thing in the world? And God should understand. But God says, you want my best? Drive it out. If you don't drive it out, you'll have to face the consequences. It will ensnare you. Folks, the consequences of obedience is God's best. Amen? And that's what we want. That's what he wants for all of us. Let's bow our heads. We'll have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the examples you've given us in Scripture. Thank you, Father, for taking away our sin. And I pray, Lord, that you help us not to, as we struggle in our Christian life, those who struggle, that we not fall into this cycle of disobedience and repentance. And over and over again, when you tell us to do something, Father, help us to be as obedient as we can possibly be. We want your blessings, Father. We want to glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.